Hi everybody, welcome to the next episode of Future Focus CXOs. Today we have a very special guest, Chris McAnucky with us. He is the CFO of National Grid. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Can you please introduce yourself? Firstly, Jay, thank you for the invite today. It's a privilege to have the opportunity to share some of my insights. I'm Chris McConaughey, as you mentioned, CFO of National Grid here in New York. We service around 4 million electric and gas customers here in New York State. And we operate around $19 billion of rate base, which is the assets that we run on behalf of our customers. I'm originally from Newcastle, England in the Northeast. I have a long finance background. I started my career in financial markets and then moved over to the insolvency practice at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then back in 2008, I joined the group treasury team at National Grid in London. And that was my first experience at a utility and a regulated utility. And within about 12 months, I got pretty hooked on the sector. Mm-hmm. And since 2008, I've been at National Grid ever since. Lived four years in the UK. And then I've spent the past 10 years in various finance roles here in the US between downstate in New York and then upstate in Syracuse. Glad to be here today. Thank you for sharing that with us. I want to come back a little bit to your role in National Grid. Talk to us something about how do you plan for these extreme weathers, right? Extreme storm conditions, natural disasters. Otherwise, we take it for granted, right? These utilities, we take it for granted. But when something that happens is when we really realize how hard it is to live without them. How do you plan for these type of disasters? It's a great question. And I'd say both within National Grid, both our preparedness and our response are fundamental to who we are as a business. We say this often, you are only as good as your last storm performance. You could be the most cost efficient and I'd say on any given day, reliable utility out there. But if you cannot respond to storms in a timely manner, all of the good work that you've done in the years before that can be lost in a matter of days. For us, it's really table stakes for who we are, being able to provide a reliable network that's safe, that's affordable, is a key tenant of what we do. And it comes down to, I'd say two or three things. Firstly, is ensuring that you've got the capability in the organization to respond. And that doesn't mean folks that are great at responding in a crisis. It's those that are good responding in a crisis, know the service territory. It's those that know the sector well, and it's those that know how to get things done in the local environment, which is really key. Secondly, we plan for storms as just part of our normal course of business. So we do a lot Mm -hmm. of resilience training and preparedness. And that is at times when we don't actually have a storm. So there's a lot of disaster management and response training we all do across the organization. Interestingly, and this is fairly common in many utilities, you don't necessarily need to be an operations employee to respond to storms. Most people at National Grid will have a storm role, whether that's being a community liaison, whether that's somebody who comes from finance to book hotels for external crews that are coming in. So everyone Mm -hmm. rallies around storm response. And then I'd say thirdly is around our early preparation is a big driver to how we respond. So depending on the severity of the storm, we will ensure that we've got enough crews and personnel on site that should the weather deteriorate, that we can respond quickly. If you're trying to mobilize people when the storms hit, 
it can mean the difference between responding and returning power in six days to responding and returning power in two days. So I'd say that's a wrap. It's, it's an element of capability. It's secondly around training and understanding your role within it. And I'd say thirdly, it's around preparedness and being able to respond in advance of or at the same time the weather that's coming in, not after the weather's coming in. I have to say, in my time at Grid, in particular as a finance professional looking I'd say outside into our operations team in New England and New York do a stellar job in responding to storms. And, and we've seen that time and time again with the level of storm response awards that we receive at National Grid, in particular the winter storm in Buffalo back in December of last year, our ability to respond to that and get folks back up with power within kind of a two, three, four day period was pretty monumental given the size and scale of the event. That's pretty good. So you're saying you prepare well, right? You always have, and you measure yourself based on how your performance was in the last storm. That is a pretty bold way of measuring yourself. And finally, you are always ready, right? You have training, you have people ready to respond when it comes to these storm situations. And I believe that applies to a lot of areas of what we do today. And I think readiness is something lacks in a lot of other sectors because they are not as life-threatening as a storm can be, right? Or going outage can be on a power because it's not just domestic. It's also commercial and it's also hospitals and there's a lot of life supporting systems which depend upon a consistent and reliable power supply. So the amazing thing about the utility sector relative to some other industries is there's not many industries that have a responsibility for pretty much every aspect of society if you're a commercial operation you can pitch your product to say i want to market this socioeconomic group the great thing about utilities is you service the cross-section of the population and that can be from all backgrounds all walks of life all income levels and particularly when you respond to storms you have to be mindful of that cross-section so who are those customers that are on life support how quickly do you return to service hospitals and elderly care homes versus schools? And the amazing thing about working in this sector is you keep every element of society in mind on anything you do, whether it's capital investment, storm response, or managing your controllable cost. And that said, we've seen a few instances where a lack of grid modernization has led to catastrophic fires in a couple of places and things like that. So can you talk to us about how your role as CFO helps understand how to optimize capital when it comes to balancing sustainability, responsiveness, and grid modernization? Yeah, that's another great question. And it's a delicate balance between safety, reliability, affordability, and delivering a clean energy network. Those things don't all move in the same direction. A couple of things to keep in mind. We obviously deliver our capital plan based on the strategy we set out. So when you look at our New York business, tenants I talked about, clean, safe, affordable, and reliable network, the key tenants of what we do, we have to balance that very heavily with affordability. If you take the example of California, how much of your electric network you underground? Obviously, it's great when you can underground an electric network because you are less susceptible to fires impacting the network because all of your wires are on the ground. But equally, that comes with a cost and you have to balance how much of that network you put underground if that is five times the cost. So we tend to think about a capital plan as delivering against or core strategy, but doing it at a level 
that one meets state's net zero targets as well as our own. And then secondly, at a level of affordability that we know we can look to pass on to the customer, but we're not driving rampant bill growth. Because as I mentioned earlier, we do what I say bank every aspect of society. So it's not a case of saying, hey, we can take the whole network and put it underground and everyone's going to be comfortable with 50% bill growth. It's around striking the right balance, but keeping those four things in unison, but in a balanced way. So it's never an easy thing to allocate capital and it's making sure that you're striking the right balance between those four variables. And obviously we do that not in isolation. We do it in collaboration with our state regulator, the Public Service Commission. So that actually makes me curious about what would be your insights on some of the challenges and opportunities, especially in the renewable energy space. What would be your response to that? I'd say that the key challenges for me across the sector come down to three things. Firstly, is sticking the course on net zero growth across kind of nation states, economies and companies are obviously long dated, 2040, 2050. We often know political cycles don't run of those time horizons. So it's ensuring that we create the right momentum to stick with those net zero goals over the next 20, 30 years. That's the first one. Mm-hmm. The second one is building, I'd say, the workforce and the capability to deliver on that. If you think our networks on the electric and gas side weren't built in 10 years or 20 years, they were built in the US over 100 and 150 years. So we know that pivoting your infrastructure overnight is not something you can just turn a switch and do. It's about building the right workforce. So it is about workforce development and the capabilities to go and build offshore wind networks, onshore wind networks, deliver that into the transmission and distribution system. So there's going to be a huge talent around skill development. And I'd say thirdly, which to me is probably one of the most important is affordability is making sure that we make this an affordable transition, but we keep every cross-section of the economy and society in mind. We know that quite often when we have these big programs at a national and federal level, it is easier to leave, or I would say quite often the targets will leave low to moderate income families behind in that process. Having an electric floor on your roof, having an electric vehicle, being able to become less reliant on the grid is all very green and it's the outcome we all want. But being able to do that where you're bringing every element of society along with you is crucially important. Those are the three challenges we have. I'd say for us at National Grid and me personally, it then comes down to the response. How are we responding to that? And how are we building a network that keeps those things in mind? So for us, a couple of things to keep in mind. Firstly, it's around us continuing to push, advocate, and support energy efficiency programs. That allows us to take the network we've got and rely on it less over time to the extent that we have demand response programs where folks are lowering their usage. We are making households and everything we do more energy efficient. So you reduce the consumption for the same level of network is going to be a huge game changer on the amount of load and the amount of generation we need to support the network. I'd say secondly for us, it's around accelerating electrification. So making sure that we can build a network to continue to hook up and support some of the onshore 
and offshore renewable generation capabilities that we've got, particularly in the US and UK. Third one, which is a key one for us, particularly in New York, given the size of our gas network, is making sure that whilst we are a huge advocate of electrification, we're maximizing the investment that we've already made today in society on the gas network. So it's about decarbonizing the gas network. So taking fossil gas out of the system and mm -hmm. slowly replacing it with RNG and also hydrogen sources, it will allow us to continue to use that network and equally have the right balance between green gas electrification, which over time will lower the bill impact on our customers and the individuals that we serve. I want to ask you, what is it you love about your job as a CFO at a national grid? What is it that just brings you the most joy? I joined this sector and I joined national grid with a view of being here for about two, three years. So I'll admit that's out there, but I became hugely passionate from what we do as an organization, along with many of our peers in the utility sector, which is you become so pivotal for how society sustains itself, for how society grows, but also how society can really lean into the environmental agenda and around the future of the earth, I'll just say it. And with organizations like National Grid, which cover the UK, cover the US, and are some of the largest investor owned utilities, we have not just a desire, but we actually have an obligation to help support society we are around for a lot longer than political cycle. So if we can't change the agenda and shape the agenda, there's probably no better organizations that can do it. We do have, I'd say, a long-term mindset in terms of how we think about the network and how we think about making the countries we serve and the economies we serve sustainable. Now, I had the opportunity about 14 months ago to sit in a room with several of my peers in the US, probably represented about 60% of the investor-owned utilities in the US, and many CFOs and many chief execs. And I won't quote the individual, but one of the chief execs sat in the room and actually just openly said, we have the brain power in this room, the authority and the ability to really set the agenda for how the US economy and how the US both gas and electric network what it looks like in 20 or 30 years time. And to me, that was super powerful because when you've got that group of people that own and operate such a vast array of electric and gas assets, they can help drive and shape what that looks like for society in 20 years. And to me, that's super powerful. And one of the reasons why, you know, I love what I do with the numbers, but I also love being able to support that agenda. And it's what keeps me ticking five out of seven days a week. Wow, that's so nice. One thing that comes to my mind, we spoke a lot about sustainability, long-term growth, making sure you are able to provide the service, not just to the people who can afford it, but to the society who really needs it, right? When it comes to a user experience or a customer experience, especially in the times when they need service or there is a disruption, how do you really address that? A couple of things. I think historically utilities have often been seen as a product where you pay your bill monthly, you figure mm. out what the dollars are, look at why it's so high or so low and get on with it. I think we've probably had the opportunity over the past several years not necessarily always to be at the forefront of the technology space. And I'm not saying we should be at the forefront all of the time, but I think 
our response to customers by the use of technology solutions has been key, but more importantly, will be key to our success going forward. So when I talk about energy efficiency programs, when I talk about demand response, our ability to take our meters and take the information we get off our meters and be able to inform customers on what that means on any given day, hour, minute of their usage and help them think about how they change some of their behavioral patterns to lower their consumption or to decide when they decide to consume over time will be key. Firstly, because it's going to give them insights in order for them to reduce consumption. And secondly, it's going to help them better understand usage and usage patterns in their homes. I'd say secondly, and I always say there's only two real contacts with the customer. One is over the phone. And secondly, when a frontline worker is digging up or putting something in and around their property, it's making sure that those individuals are key to our success and customer experience are equipped with the right information that if a customer steps out of their front door and says, hey, I've got an issue with my meter or why are you digging up the street and what's that going to mean to me, that those individuals are actually equipped with all of the right information because that's ultimately where our customer experience is driven from. And let's say the added to that is making sure that we can justify every dollar that's on the bill. I think customer sat and customer perception is a lot about what they see and feel, but more importantly, it's about what they're getting for their dollars. And I think if we can be really clear and really pointed about what customers are getting, given that the money they spend on their bill, I think that's really going to be a key game changer in how the customer views the utility sector and importantly, national grid. Miss, you are looking at technology. You really touch the customer physically in many places. Right. When there is an outage, we see people coming and really making some change. And we are so hopeful they can get it quickly done. So we get our utilities up there. At the same time, we have some problems. People come in, I think. That's a very important touch point. Yeah, and it's ensuring that the 20,000 employees that we have and split between kind of UK, US and our other businesses have the customer in mind in everything we do. And knowing those touch points are probably the two important touch points, call center, customer bill, and frontline operator is thinking about our processes and thinking about our investments internally that are enabling those experiences to be the best. Utilities will continue to be successful. If you start looking too inward and have finance, talking to finance about finance problems, that's when you start to solve things for yourself and lose Mm -hmm. sight of really what it means for the customer. Let me ask you a question on that. You have this customer-centric focus. You also have this sustainability desire. You've talked about hydrogen, offshore and onshore, wind and a variety of other technologies, but also customer perspectives are starting to change, right? So how is technology within your customer experience impacting the voices of those customers, changing your financial decisions? What I'll say is, for example, when we are booking a flight ticket, Google shows us the carbon footprint. Right. Mm. And we think for a second, do I want to go for the cheapest whose carbon footprint is not that good? Or am I okay to spend $50 more, but get Delta who is really doing better on that job? So yep. I think that is where real estate was going. We have the one interesting thing for not all utilities, but many utilities. And quite often it's a lesser known attribute of most utilities is we don't survive and thrive through consumption. 
So we don't make money on how much you consume as a customer. We actually earn a return on the assets we deploy to create the network to push commodity through. So the generation and supply within our sector is a whole different part of the sector. It's not something that National Grid owns and invests in and make money. However, we have a responsibility to make sure that commodity passes through our network to the end customer because we service that customer. So we do have the ability to make sure that they have visibility on what's going on the bill. They also know, let's say on the electric network, where the sources of that electricity are coming from. And they also have the ability to choose different sources depending on what state you operate in. So if you want a full renewable portfolio, supplying your commodity, you can pick that within the state that you live. It's the same with Eversource in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York. It's for us to make sure we're giving the visibility to customers. But it comes back to, if you look at your cable channel provider in the UK, the amount of optionality you have to pick what programs, what packages, how you take that service from what you pay for is often very different to how you look at your utility bills, right? You think it's gas, you think it's electric. So it's for us to make sure that through our digital channels and platforms, through our mail drops, but less through the apps that we serve, that customers know the optionality that they have so that the commodity piece of their life doesn't just become, hey, you put the hose in the gas station, you pump your car and off you go. You can actually see where that fuel has come from, how much of that fuel you want to use and at what time of the day you want to use it so that you're not just turning on the microwave or the washing machine whenever you want. You're actually looking at when's the right time to do it. If I've got time of use rates, Am I better off turning on that washing machine at two in the morning versus two in the afternoon? And again, it's about bringing that transparency and visibility to our customers so that they are engaging in this service very different to what they would have done 20, 30 years ago. And through, I'd say, the fact that we've had volatility in commodity prices, we do see higher instance of natural disasters, which are causing increased costs and utilities, the ability to minimize costs through better choices better information that we give to customers is going to be key, particularly over the next five, 10 years. Okay. I think I'm done with my question, Steve. Do you have anything else in your mind? I think the last question I'd like to ask is based on your journey to become a CFO, what sort of advice would you give to individuals aspiring to move into these types of leadership roles, especially in finance or in the energy sector? It's a great question. I think I would have probably answered that differently every five years. My answer today, based on what I know and what I've done, I'd say explore a lot. And what I mean by that is don't just do the role that you're paid to do. Explore the organization that you work and take every opportunity you have to get involved in what I call extracurricular corporate activities, which are trying to find out about other teams, exploring other disciplines within the organization. I'd say learn fast. And I don't mean cram, but just take every opportunity to make sure you're learning. I always say that each year that goes by, you make decisions slower because it's a shorter period relative to your whole life. So you have to learn quicker each year that goes by to keep pace. Thirdly, I'd say network, and you can do that many different ways, but I'd say create a strong network that you trust, that you can continue to leverage over time, I think is key. And I'd say the last one for me, which I've learned over the years, is don't chase job title too quickly. Make sure you've got depth 
make sure you've got a knowledge base because if you're good at what you do, you're passionate at what you do and you've built enough depth, you don't need to know everything, enough to survive and thrive in the right role. You will progress just as quickly as that person that made VP in the first five years of their career. Great advice. Thank you, Chris. It has been pleasure talking to you. Any last words you have? I would just say, firstly, again, thank you for the opportunity. I'd say this is an awesome sector that we work in and it is going to be pivotal for generations to come. And I'd say lastly, just thank you to all of my colleagues within National Grid and also in the sector for the great work that they do, particularly in the response to storms and natural disasters. We've seen that more and more over the past couple of months with what we've seen in Hawaii and other areas of the US. I know folks are passionate about this sector and they deserve credit for the great work that they do. So thank you for the opportunity and look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. 